Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of the Decent People podcast, a uh, production of Decentral Media. Uh, I'm Matt Lysing, your host and co-founder of Decentral. Uh, today we have a great guest with us, uh, Meltem Demirers, who is the Chief Strategy Officer of CoinShares, uh, where she also runs the CoinShares Ventures uh, VC unit. Uh, prior to that, she came by way of Digital, Digital Currency Group, and if you want to go even further back, she had a little uh, stint in the energy uh, world with uh, at ExxonMobil, Deloitte, and Dow Chemicals. Um, if you hang out uh, at Oxford or MIT, you might also run into her uh, as she's a lecturer uh, at those universities. And if you've ever used or appreciate the term shitcoin, you have Melton to thank in part. Uh, she didn't come up with the term, but she definitely has uh, helped perpetuate what it means in the shitcoin waterfall and to my knowledge is the only person to have testified about shitcoins before congress <laughs> so i think what, what an intro that <laughs> i now need to live up to this expectation yeah well i think the last time i ran into you in person was at a, just randomly at a hotel bar during the milken conference here in la um <laughs> That's when the world was, you know, the old world that we used to live in. Um, so it's been a little while, and it's great to have you on. Thanks for thanks for doing this. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm really excited to be on, and I love that you're doing this show. Um, I think a lot of people perceive, you know, us crypto folks as crazy or charlatans or, or lepers. Um, but we're not. We're normal human beings. So yeah, that's. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for saying that. That's really the ethos here at Decentral. Uh, we want to tell the stories of the founders and the builders and the dreamers who are making crypto a reality because it is a reality. And well, there are still a lot of people who think it's going to go to zero or just suddenly disappear. Uh, that's clearly not the case. And so what we want to do is just really just try to tell the human stories here to um, appeal to people and maybe help get them into the space if they've been sort of put off by you know, it's technical, it's scary, it's hard to understand. It's, it's really not. And it's, if you know the people like I do, uh, it really just is something that is, it's a wonderful place. And there's just so many characters. Um, so that's, that's what we're trying to do here at Decentral. And um, so thank you very much for being on. Um, let's just go to the beginning. Where, where did you grow up? And where, where were you born? Yeah, so my life story is like crypto. It's kind of a hot mess, <laughs> which is fun, um, but but also confusing. So my parents are both Turkish. They're both from the same small rural village in Turkey, which is pretty unique. Um, they grew up with no running water and no electricity. I myself was born and raised in the Netherlands. Um, I grew up speaking Dutch. I went to Dutch public school as a kid. Um, spent a lot of time in Turkey growing up in the village my parents are from, but also traveling all over Europe and um, moved to the States when I was a teenager, went to middle school and high school here, learned English as a teenager. And um, when I moved to America, I moved to the Midwest, to Michigan. And um, I'll be very candid when I say that the Midwest was not really f for me. I found it to be a very strange place. And <laughs> just so different from the environment I had grown up in, like this very multicultural, very sort of diverse um, environment, going to a small town in Michigan, 
Um, and so I spent a lot of time. I spent most of my formative years as a teenager holed up in the library uh, reading books. That's how my love of science fiction developed. And then also um, those were the early days of the Internet, uh, the 90s. I'm a child of the 90s. So I spent a lot of time playing video games. Um, it's when the PlayStation 1 first came out. So I really got into online communities and IRC and online forums thanks to a video game called Final Fantasy VII uh, from my fellow nerds out there. That then quickly devolved into LAN parties and all sorts of other really uncool uh, hobbies and interests, including like Magic the Gathering and, uh, you know, Catan and, and other board games um, and card games. And so... Hey, you're, you're among your people here, Meltem. You wouldn't, um, you'd be surprised how many times LAN parties have come up in these interviews I'm doing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, back in the day, you know, um, I remember my mom would buy Surge and uh, the pizzas, you know, you'd have a land party with, with your friends and that, that was cool. But I think for many of us in, in crypto, we share sort of um, similar stories or similar backgrounds when it comes to our, our formative years. I think, um, you know, we're all people who felt to a certain degree that we didn't really fit in in the environment we were in. I think for me, that sort of persisted like throughout my adult years as well. And I went to college and then I worked in corporate America, just really feeling like I didn't really belong there. And, uh, you know, when I first got into Bitcoin, I was like, whoa, these are, these are my people. Like I want to be with the freaks and the crazy people. So it's, it's felt like a homecoming in a way, which has been interesting. Yeah, that's great. Let the, before we get to Bitcoin, let's go back a little bit. Um, with your Turkish connection, you, you must've talked to Goon about this. Do you know Gun uh, Emin Gun Sire? The yeah, Emin uh, Gun Sire. Uh, he's he's a good friend and obviously fellow Turk. There's actually a lot of Turkish people in crypto, which is really interesting. Um, my dad, you know, is a is a scientist. Um, I studied math in college. My brother is a mathematician and cryptographer. There are a lot of Turkish mathematicians and cryptographers and developers. Um, so it's been really fun being in crypto because there is this really strong Turkish crypto contingent. So it's been really fun. Like we jokingly call it the Turkish crypto mafia, <laughs> even though <laughs> we see each other very occasionally. But it's been really fun um, being able to reconnect with people. And then it's also been really fun just um, seeing how engaged the Turkish crypto community is so um, it's been fun I think to see my relatives and like my grandpa you know who lives in a small village in, in Turkey he's a farmer you know he saw me on the Turkish news one night and I think that was a pretty exciting moment like here's a kid from a family that comes from nothing comes from nowhere and here I am in in crypto land and it's a big deal so it's it's been really fun being part of the Turkish crypto community yeah um so you grew up for your early life in the Netherlands. Um, what was it like going to school there? It was it was really great. Um, in Europe, the school system is a little different in that in the U.S., like you have two and a half months of summer vacation and you go to summer camp and summer is kind of this extended time off. In Europe, it's quite a bit different because your holidays are interspersed more throughout the year. So you have multiple vacations per year that are, you know, a week or two at a time. And one of the things that my parents did like early on um, when I was a kid is we spent a lot of time traveling. We had an RV and we would just like go all over Europe. And so during winter holidays, we'd go ski in the, the Alps. In the summers, we would go 
to the south of France. I grew up sailing because uh, I grew up on, on the water in the Netherlands. So we'd go to regattas in different parts of Europe. We'd have our little you know, sailboats and we'd windsurf. And so it was um, it was really fun just growing up in an environment you know, where you'd go somewhere for a week or two. You'd meet kids from all over. You wouldn't necessarily speak the same language, but you'd have to figure out like, how to get along and play together because you're going to be there for a week or two. Um, and I didn't just want to hang out with, with my brother because he was, you know, my brother. <laughs> and so um, it was really fun growing up in Europe. It was very uh, different. Um, and then when I came to the U.S., I just remember being very perplexed by, by U.S. culture, uh, particularly like how much importance people placed on uh, the church as the center of social life. Whereas in Europe, I think it was a, a bit more secular, uh, a bit more diverse. And, you know, we just had just such different experiences uh, in Europe as opposed to, I think, how things are, are structured here in the, the U.S. Wow, that childhood sounds idyllic um, and similar to my own. In fact, like I grew up sailing here in Los Angeles and we, my parents were very big on taking us on road trips throughout the West um, to, you know, Yellowstone and Utah and uh, Yosemite. We'd go to Yosemite every year. So, yeah, it's just you get that sort of wanderlust in, in you as a kid and just the sense of the world as being so big and so amazing. Um, I think it's a great thing for parents to do if they can. Um, so you mentioned you studied math in college. Did you? What was school like for you before that? Did you gravitate to certain to certain subjects, or was there something that you really uh, appealed to you as a kid? Yeah, I, I think for me, I always enjoyed uh, math and, and science. Like biology and chemistry were my favorite subjects. Math, interestingly, I never thought I was good at math, but it ended up like being good at it. Um, I was never that great at abstract math. So like, physics was challenging for me. Physics still is challenging for me. Um, but calculus definitely made sense to me. Linear algebra, like applied math, these areas made a lot of sense to me. And I think uh, one of the things I always enjoy is like there is a right answer in math. I think English not being my native language, um, you know, I sometimes struggled with the humanities where there was so much that was subject to interpretation. Like how do you really grade a subjective paper, right, on a topic that doesn't really have any definitive conclusions. It's really more of an opinion piece. I think I, I struggled with that to a, to a certain degree, but I really liked logic, reasoning, um, like proof by induction or deduction. I think those were things that made sense to me because you go through a structured process, you use evidence-based uh, sort of reasoning to arrive at conclusions. Um, and so to me, those topics were always really appealing because they weren't dependent on my grasp of language or, or rhetoric. But um, interestingly, I also got into debate a bit. And then um, I was a big music nerd as, as well. So I spent a lot of my teenage years um, playing piano competitively, which was interesting um, because it added sort of this sort of different element to my life where, you know, I was spending three to four hours a day practicing um, for competitions or working on theory. And so um, to me, I always gravitated towards subjects or topics that were more discreet and sort of objective in nature, as opposed to things that were highly subjective and sort of opinion uh, based, which I think is one of the reasons why crypto has always been so interesting to me because it's really the perfect combination of the more esoteric or sort of values-based um, humanities and 
uh, the realm of like the social sciences, but combining that with sort of the absolutes of math and cryptography and, and the hard sciences and the two combined together, I think creates a really interesting design space and a really interesting conversation space. Uh, so, so that definitely started early in, in my life. And I think part of that's just growing up, not speaking English, moving to this country, not speaking English, learning English and like really struggling with English because English has more exceptions than rules and it's not a particularly easy language uh, to learn and even speaking English conversationally I think is is just super challenging for people who aren't native English speakers right I yeah I would never guess that you weren't a native English speaker I think you speak it uh, perfectly and then it's interesting staying on languages obviously music is a language of its own and it really um, does amazing things I think for your brain just like code is a language or Dutch or Turkish or English Um, Did you, uh, growing up in the U.S., did you have more exposure here um, to, like, the video games and stuff you were talking about? And and was, like, the cultural shift, was that um, something you remember from from being in the Netherlands um, prior to that? Yeah, I think for me, um, it's more like never really feeling quite like I understood American culture, and particularly American culture in a small town. Like, my peers were part of Young Life, which is, like, a Christian youth organization. And I remember going to Young Life meeting, and I was like, what is is this? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Um, So I was just very perplexed by American small-town culture. And so for, for, and I was also a hustler, right? Like I would teach piano to neighborhood kids. I would mow lawns, I'd bake cookies, like to try to make money on the side. Like I was always kind of hustling and I just didn't understand why someone would sit in a church for hours at a time and like talk about Jesus. It just, it was, it didn't really resonate with, with me. It reminds me of the movie Footloose. Did you ever see that? I did. I did. I actually played piano in the uh, musical production Foot, Footloose. I have uh, fond memories. Yeah, that. yeah. I bet that one resonated with you. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, there's a lot, a lot of parallels here. <laughs> and did you go to, to this part of Michigan because your dad was a professor? No, so my dad was a, an executive um, at, at a, a company that was headquartered in, in Michigan. So, you know, ended up um, in this town. And the nice thing was the town had amazing uh, public school as a result, right? There was a lot of funding. This small town had its own symphony orchestra, which was super cool. Wow. So I do think um, I did have the opportunity to be exposed to a lot of things that, like, your average kid wouldn't necessarily have growing up. Uh, the town had great Internet infrastructure. Like, we always had a computer in the house. We always had, you know, like, the latest technology gadgets. That was kind of a love that my parents had that they – they passed on to my brother and I, but it was definitely a very different experience. Um, and I think, you know, through that process, I've never lived in one place for more than five or six years at a, a time, really. And so it's just been interesting. You know, I kind of am envious of people who've grown up in one place and lived there their whole, that lived there their entire lives and sort of are very settled and anchored in a place. I've never really had that experience. And I don't necessarily know that it's something I seek out, but it's just so different from what I grew up with and how my life has unfolded. Yeah, I I agree with that. I've I've felt that way a little bit of just envy of somebody who's been somewhere their whole life and has such roots in a community. But at the same time, 
I mean, I grew up in Los Angeles, but then needed to get out and see the world. And, you know, I've lived in San Francisco and New York. And, um, you know, there's just something about seeing different parts of the country or the world that I think is also super important. Um, so did you get a sense, like, when did you start getting a sense that math was the way you were going to go into college? And, and were you, what were you thinking longer term? Were you thinking about teaching or um, like, what was math going to get you t- to, to be able to do later in life? Yeah, so I, I think for me, there were a couple of realizations that happened at the same time. Um, the first is, so like I said, I was always sort of a, a hustler <laughs> and from an early age, really valued my financial independence and having money to spend on, on things I wanted. Um, so when I was in high school, I started working as a nanny for a local family Um and it was really hard. Like I would go over before school and before high school and like get the kids ready, take them to school and then pick them up after school, work on the weekends, et cetera. And I just remember looking at that and being like, oh my God, I have to go to college because I don't want to work like this for the rest of my life. Like this is really hard and really tiring. Um, so that was sort of realization one is like, I really wanted to do something meaningful, but also have the opportunity to have a different life than like living paycheck to paycheck. And I'd seen that and I'd seen people working like that. And I was like, I I don't want to do this. So I need to really like work hard and do well in school so that I have options. Um, I think the second for me was um, when I got to university, I initially started out in biochemistry. Um, I thought I wanted to go to med school and be a doctor. And my first summer of college, I ended up um, working in public health. I think a lot of people, um, especially like when you're younger, are attracted to medicine or the idea of being a doctor because it's the most tangible way to help people, right? When someone has a physical ailment or something that's physically wrong with them and you're able to fix it, that's like a, a very concrete way to be able to help people. And it's sort of like a a one-to-one thing. Um, And working in public health, I very quickly realized that it wasn't actually doctors and practitioners who were impacting people's lives the most. It was the donors. Um, It was donors who were able to give capital and direct capital who were making actually the biggest changes because they were able to work instead of one-to-one like a doctor does, they were able to work Mm one-to-many. And so I started to recognize that the currency of change was money. Um, And so that's when I was like, okay, I want to make a lot of money not because I want to live a specific lifestyle um, beyond just like not having to live paycheck to paycheck, but more because I saw how money could be used as a tool for people to shape the world in ways they wanted to see it. And so um, I remember calling my dad my sophomore year and I was like, hey, so I know I said I was going to do this biochemistry thing, but like I'm going to do math and econ because I'm going to go into finance and make a shitload of money and I can actually change the world with, with money more than I ever can as, as a doctor or a practitioner. So that was kind of an early insight. Um, and then leaving university, I graduated during the financial crisis. And so, you know, I thought I would go into investment banking or trading. Um, I worked on a trading desk my last two years of college, like a local family office, XB tall trader. We traded, um, NACAS, ethanol, 
methanol, um, a 24 hour power. I started carbon desk when I was there as well. Uh, but I realized like trading was a very sort of finite and limited skill set, And so ended up going into consulting because all the iBanking jobs got rescinded <laughs> in the fall of my senior year. And I was like, well, shit, I, I need to find something to do. Ended up in consulting. Um, and, you know, I think I always just wanted to have um, independence and freedom and the ability to sort of dictate my own path. And I recognized early on that the ability to accumulate financial capital was one of the fastest ways um, to be able to affect change at, at scale, or to at least start to reshape the world in some really fundamental uh, ways. I love that. Um, the currency of change was money. That's a, such a good uh, pithy thought. When you came out of college and the financial crisis was like kind of destroying the world, what, what did that feel like? Did you, were you scared? Did you think you were going to lose 10 years of your life to like the economic downturn or, or what was that like for you? No, I, I didn't really care. Um, I've always sort of been um, very relaxed about things. Like I don't really worry on a day-to-day basis. I have a high degree of conviction that I can operate in environments of chaos And I think my childhood and my upbringing had a lot to do with that. Um, You know, just living in like not a very structured environment, having a lot of chaos and like lack of predictability, I think has made me just very adept at operating in environments of uncertainty, like ambiguity and, and chaos. So I wasn't necessarily worried. I think more than anything, I saw it as an opportunity Um, And for me, it also really highlighted some of these fundamental truths I'd known for a while because I have family who lives in a part of the world where they didn't have access to financial services. They didn't have credit cards. They they didn't, you know, have the financial infrastructure that a lot of the people I was interacting with in the U.S. had, right? The kids I went to college with, like, took money for granted because they never thought about money or really had to work a day in their lives, Um, So for me, I wasn't worried because I knew I would be fine and I knew I'd figure it out. More than anything, I was excited. I don't know if excited is the right word, but I was optimistic and hopeful that this would create interesting new opportunities, um, which I think it it definitely did, right, in in the form of Bitcoin. And there's this whole generation of people, my peers in crypto, who grew up in sort of a similar environment, who watched similar things unfold, who looked at the world and like, wait a minute, there's something that is fundamentally broken here. And so to me, it was more like an aha moment where I recognized that all of these institutions that we placed on this this pedestal, right, that we held out to be infallible and just, uh, you know, paragons of virtue were in fact deeply corrupt and deeply fucked up and like fundamentally unsustainable. And that was a really interesting insight because up until that point, I had been a fairly, um, I'd been like a fairly good corporate citizen. I believe that if I worked hard, the firm would see my work and I would get promoted and I was, I was good and I played by the rules. And I think at that moment I realized that all of that was bullshit. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was a very liberating moment and a moment where I recognized that I could create realities um, that existed outside of like this consensus reality 
and that the systems and institutions around us were in fact not as rigid or as robust or as credible as I had initially believed they were, which I think is a really important insight to, to have because I think a lot of kids don't really grow up questioning authority, right? Especially not yeah. institutional authority. Yeah. Um, and I wondered, as you were talking about your kind of resilience or your belief in yourself that you would be okay, uh, that, it sounds to me like that might have come from having so many different areas that you lived in and like going to the Netherlands and then coming to the United States and fi always figuring that out and sort of like moving forward. I wonder if that's something that um, instilled that in you as a kid and it helped you later uh, in your life. Um, and then I, I also, I think talking about the corporate sort of, you know, do, do well and you'll be taken care of. I was talking to um, someone else about this the other day about how crypto kind of brought back uh, this idea or this it allows for people to own something and actually literally own it. Um, you know, you don't really own the stocks in your portfolio. You don't own the money in your bank account. Those are all basically, you know, you're being allowed to participate in that system. But in, in crypto, in, in a much broader sense, there, there is this actual ownership economy and ownership identity. And I think, uh, as you were hinting at, I think that it has appealed to a lot of people who sort of have the curtain pulled back on them by the financial crisis and just sort of like all the ways that the government, you know, kind of like has its thumb on the scale. I, I definitely think that's a part of it. I also think the other piece is I didn't have like a option B. I've only ever had option A, which is me, right? So I think that de definitely um, requires you to sort of think outside the box and to take risks. Like I, I didn't have a fallback plan. I didn't have rich parents. I didn't have like a rich uncle. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have the desire to marry someone who was going to take care of me. I always just had my, myself. So I think um, a lot of people who only have themselves to rely on kind of develop that that mindset early on because um if you don't do it for yourself no one else is going to and so that was just my prevailing mindset like I have to do this for myself because no one else is going to do it for me yeah. and I think that really forces you to have some very candid conversations with yourself um, and to take a lot of responsibility for what happens to you I think one of the biggest things I see especially with people I interact with um and have interacted with over the years. You know, I've been talking about crypto since 2015. I've been talking about Bitcoin since 2015. And so many people I've been interacting with and have been friends with for years and years or have been in my life for years and years are always like, why didn't you tell me to buy Bitcoin? I'm like, I did. You just refused to do anything with that information. And I think a lot of people, especially in the United States, just have this incredible victim mentality or they're extremely entitled where they believe that it's other people's responsibility to do things for them. And that is just simply not how the world works. Yeah. It's just absolutely not. Yeah, absolutely agree. It's great advice. You, you have to do it for yourself. No one else is going to do it for you. Um, what, um, so what made you jump into energy and sort of like working, you know, for energy companies and then uh, you had a little hot minute at the corporate treasury at, at Exxon Mobil. <laughs> yeah, so the, the energy thing, look, um, first and foremost, like I went to college in Houston, I went to Rice for undergrad, and I, I studied energy and energy economics. I found energy really fascinating. I mean, a lot of people um, don't ever think about 
where energy comes from. Like every single thing we do as humans from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, even when we're asleep in our homes is dependent on this incredibly complex global supply chain, global logistics infrastructure that supports the modern energy economy. And as our society becomes more technologically enabled, right, we consume more and more energy. And so for me, working in the energy industry was incredibly fun. I absolutely loved it. I still love it. I actually think crypto is like a big part of the future of the global energy industry. And that is, you know, something that's been exciting for me is I actually get to use all of this knowledge I have from my prior life in energy in the crypto space now. And that's been super fun. Yeah. And but, I see you, you would have been in Houston during the Enron blow up. That must have been wild. It was. Um, at that point in time, I don't think I was really even that aware of what was going on. I mean, I was a, I was a college kid. Um, but, you know, I, I think energy is just such a foundational component of our modern world. And so few people appreciate the complexity of the global energy supply chain, the global energy value chain. And for, for me, the opportunity to work in energy, the opportunity to work with some incredibly brilliant people um, working on really complex financial engineering problems, really complex corporate finance problem, taxation issues, infrastructure and logistics challenges is just in incredibly fun. And uh, I, I really, really enjoyed working in hard industry. I think one of the things I struggle with sometimes in crypto is we focus primarily on bits and bytes. And it's easy when you're working in, in tech to feel detached from hard infrastructure, but you can't have bits and bytes without atoms, right? Like everything we do requires computation and meat space to happen, mm -hmm. right? It requires yeah. a chip somewhere being connected to a power source and running and for connectivity from a telecommunications perspective everything we do in technology especially in crypto is 100 dependent on energy and on semiconductors uh, computation and communication right yeah. and all of that is reliant on this incredibly complex global infrastructure that has taken multiple decades and trillions of dollars to build but somehow people believe that crypto is completely detached from that which i think is just a phenomenally interesting way <laughs> to view the world and something I've never really understood. But I'm uh, working in energy. It was just a wild time. Um, when I started, I worked primarily on the trading side. Then I moved into onshore um, shale. So fracking at the time had just started, like Chesapeake, Aubrey McClendon, who was just an absolute genius when it came to financial engineering. Uh, later on, you know, it was revealed that much of that was financial fraud. <laughs> but at the time, he truly was, you know, the renaissance man who would put um, shale oil and shale gas on the map. And Chesapeake was an incredibly innovative company. Um, and there were so many, like, so much energy in the in the energy space not not to be you know redundant there um at the time also pipeline mlps were being created i worked on a couple of mlps and other sort of unique financing structures and securitization structures related to long-term energy infrastructure got to work on a few projects that were sort of multi-decade um multi-billion dollar global infrastructure build projects like papua new guinea um you know how do you extract natural gas from the highlands of papua new guinea as a country that doesn't even have you know 
energy or or banking or any sort of modern infrastructure how do you transport natural gas 400 miles through the jungle get it to the coast how do you build a liquefaction liquefaction train and and all of this infrastructure like these are really interesting really complex engineering challenges economic challenges finance challenges cultural challenges so there's all these really interesting layers that sort of compound together and so um i just really enjoyed how dynamic the space was how intellectually rigorous it it was and also the the people who worked in energy like they're fucking crazy right you have to be a little bit crazy to do things like that and so i really just enjoyed working with incredibly smart incredibly ambitious risk-loving people who were also a little bit reckless and wild yeah that's that's where i um that's where i started at bloomberg news actually it was on the energy team um and i quickly got on to the the beat to cover the New York Mercantile Exchange where, you know, oil and natural gas futures were traded and had a lot. Yeah, like I totally agree. Like John Arnold and a lot of those guys in the energy hedge fund world um, were. Uh, I've met John. I've met Marty Greenberg. um, Yeah. Yeah. Like these guys are are absolute just legends. Yeah. Danny Masters, right? It was one of the, yeah. the first oil traders, sort of the world's first commodities hedge fund, which actually like the predecessor to CoinShares. Like, um, I have such respect and admiration for these people who <laughs> saw this industry early. Um, commodities were not an investable asset class. Energy was not an investable asset class. It is now a global multi-trillion dollar industry that forms the backbone of modern society. It's it's fascinating. I continue to find it just absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So it must have been right around this time that you discovered Bitcoin. Is that right? Yeah, it was. So um, how, I was. Tell me that story. Who did? Who do? Who introduced you to it, or how did you stumble across it? Yeah. So um, my my brother introduced me to it, um, and I have this vivid memory. So the year was twenty twelve. Um, at the time, you know, I've been consulting for a while. The lifestyle was incredibly unsustainable. I was working, you know, 100 hours a week. I was traveling all over the world. At the time, I was working on the Caterpillar Bisiris acquisition. It was a $7 billion equipment, uh, mining equipment manufacturer. The Caterpillar had acquired um, those based in China. So spending a lot of time in, in China. And I remember being, you know, in a hotel room in Tianjin, China, um, in the fall of 2012. And I was like, I just, I, I need to change some things in my life. Like this is, this is not working for me. Um, and at the time I'd been talking to my brother a, a lot more and he mentioned Bitcoin to me. And so I started going on Reddit and the Bitcoin talk forums. Um, and I remember being like, what if this is crazy? Like what a weird subculture. These people are absolutely insane. Cause at the time you have to remember Bitcoin was deeply rooted in, um, ideology mm-hmm. and, um, it was still like very cypherpunk in, in many ways. And I remember being absolutely fascinated by it, but I took a detour and instead of going into to Bitcoin, um, I went to grad school at MIT. So my company at the time like sponsored people to go to grad school. It's like, okay, I'm going to go to grad school for a bit and let's see what, what happens. And then it was in grad school that I learned about startups. Like I had been Little Miss Energy, Miss Corporate America, like M&A, Energy, et cetera. I didn't even know about startups and venture capital and all this stuff. Got to grad school, met people my age who had raised millions if not hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital and i was like 
wait a minute, this is dope. Like, <laughs> what, like what's going on here? I need to get in on this. This is crazy. And that's when I started to get into the world of, of startups. Um, and then I was leaving grad school, you know, I looked at a bunch of fintech startups. Fintech at the time was really just still an emergent sort of sector. Um, it wasn't really that that popular yet. Looked at a bunch of fintech startups, like wasn't really that inspired by any of them. Like who wants to work, like make their life's work building a better like bill payment system. That's not that exciting to me. Um, but then, you know, I continued to stay like involved in Bitcoin at MIT. Um, the MIT Bitcoin Club was started by some of my my friends um, in, in school who I continue to be friends with. And um, through kind of this process of being in like Bitcoin and fintech and startups and venture capital, met Barry Silver, who was starting Digital Currency Group at the time, which was kind of this really cool combination of like a, a almost like a PE firm or an investment firm more like a holding company that also had a bunch of venture exposure, but then was also building businesses in the trading space. And I was like, okay, this I understand. Yeah. This tell tell me about that because the DGC has become obviously such, such an integral um, company in, in almost all of crypto. But at the beginning, what was that like? And what, what was Barry, did Barry have a vision of that that just like kind of, you know, really appealed to you or what was the relationship like there? Yeah, I mean, Barry had that vision before. I mean, I give Barry a lot of credit. He had a vision, you know, I think as early as 2013, and he has just been relentlessly working on that vision for the last decade. I think a lot of people look at DCG today and they just see the success, but those early days were incredibly challenging. Um, and those early days, you know, I remember when I joined, I joined on April 20th, 2015, and Digital Currency Group didn't exist yet. So it was Wait, you, you joined on 420? I joined on 420. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That is correct. And I remember that day I went to New York. Um, I, I rented an apartment. Like, I visited three different apartments, just rented a random apartment, um, went to an, uh, one of the inside Bitcoin conferences, met like a bunch of people, met Eric Voorhees and, um, the bit instant guys and the, uh, butter coin guys, like this whole crazy world that doesn't really even exist anymore. Um, and I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing now. And then we spent, you know, six months, eight months raising capital for DCG, and nobody wanted to give us money. Nobody really wanted to talk to us. People laughed at us. People told us we were crazy. A lot of my family and friends were like, what, what are you doing with your life? Like Bitcoin is money for drug dealers. Why, why are you doing this? So there were definitely moments where I was like, okay, <laughs> okay. I'm not really sure what we're doing. <laughs> but I think um, we had such an amazing team in those early days working with Michael Morrow, Michael Sunshine, Barry Ryan Selkis, like we had a really tight core team. We spent a lot of time together. We worked really well together. We all shared, I think, this incredible conviction. And we had this amazing portfolio of entrepreneurs who are just so incredibly inspiring, had built incredible businesses against all odds using Bitcoin in a variety of new and novel ways, building new blockchain protocols. And so it was really in those early days, like the community that kept me going and was just so incredibly inspiring and gave me so much energy to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. It was, it was really fun. Yeah. That, that's one thing I try to get across to people who are skeptical of this, you know, overall crypto world is that the number one, like you said, the people are amazing. Uh, I covered wall street for a long time. And, and as a kind of counter to that, uh, there, there's just 
a lot of hope, a lot of optimism, um, a lot of a lot of energy from people, which is is refreshing, um, which I really like. And then it's you know they make it fun, and it's kind of weird that you know, <laughs> like kind of getting back to your comments before about you know you're supposed to just be a good corporate citizen and go do your job, and your boss will notice you, and you'll get a raise. And it's like there's no room for fun in most of that stuff, you know. But um, here, that, that, what I really love is just the ways that people do make it fun on, on a daily basis. Um, uh, I mean, and when I say fun, let me be clear. There were decidedly a lot of very unfun moments, right? Um, but what was really, f- what made it so um, great was like, we were all in the trenches together. And I just, ha- it's so funny. Like I was just in Switzerland and I ran into a Finnish entrepreneur that I haven't seen in years, right? I hadn't seen him in person since maybe 2016, but from 2015 to 2016, I probably talked to him and his co-founder every week for at least an hour, right? Just dealing with different challenges, figuring out how to deal with bank accounts, getting shut down, dealing with regulators, like all, all sorts of bullshit. So just being in the trenches with a group of people it just is, and you'll never have more fun than when you're the little guy fighting the system, right? There's something really fun about being an outcast and a rebel and being with like a bunch of other freaks. I actually sometimes worry that when crypto becomes mainstream, it's going to stop being interesting because then we will be the majority. But there is kind of this really, I don't know, I, I like being a freak. I like you know, being the, the outsider. I like being the weirdo. That's kind of the person I've been my whole life. I'm a, I'm yeah. a weirdo. So it was really fun being with a bunch of other weirdos. Um, it was nice. Along those lines, though, you're now, um, you know, you're participating in the World Economic Forum. You're the co-chair of their cryptocurrency council. Like, how do you, what do you think the WEF um, who of course sponsors Davos every year. What, what do you think the role there is, is in, like where does crypto and the WF kind of combine and what are you hoping to do through that work? Yeah, so um, a point of clarification there. So I, um, together with Kai Sheffield, who runs Crypto at Visa, we were co-chairs of this WEF Cryptocurrency Council um, for last year. That stint like ended in late last year, so I'm no longer um, involved in that. Prior to that, though, I did work with WEF on something they called the Blockchain like Council for, for a number of years. And look, the objective has always been, like, WEF is in a really interesting position where they are trying to figure out what's going on in the world and educate corporate leaders and world leaders and people of all stripes about what these technology shifts are and and what these um, technology shifts might mean for the world. So my objective was always to ensure that Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies were represented in a fair light. I think so often when research institutions and think tanks um, get on the topic of blockchain and crypto or whatever you want to call it, um, they have a very specific agenda. And a lot of the information that is peddled by think tanks is just factually incorrect and is focused on promoting a specific point of view. Namely, when it comes to Bitcoin, the prevalent point of view has been that Bitcoin bad, Bitcoin uses energy, therefore Bitcoin bad, um, and like Bitcoin's money for drug dealers and criminals. And so my objective was always, like, how do we ensure that when we have these conversations with an audience that is extremely influential and has the ability to implement um, policy at at scale and in mass, 
how do we ensure that the information people are getting is factually accurate and that it's neutral and unbiased? Um, and then also, how do we ensure that the voices that are being heard are not just, you know, white guys, you know, from California who are already well-connected and have billions of dollars at their disposal, but that we're also hearing from entrepreneurs in Southeast Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa and Eastern Europe and the Middle East who are actually using this technology in real and relevant ways to actually help people do things they haven't been able to do before. And so, um, you know, there's sort of two key components. One is recruiting and surfacing the work of entrepreneurs in the crypto space, particularly those working in developing markets, emerging markets, or markets where financial systems are not as well developed, because I think those are some of the areas where cryptocurrencies, and in particular Bitcoin, have the most to offer. And again, being able to tell these stories and give really tangible examples of how Bitcoin is being used in these markets is really, really helpful because so many of the ways that we talk about Bitcoin today is like very esoteric, it's very difficult for people to understand. So being able to translate into something very concrete that's easy to grasp and understand and being able to tell human stories about Bitcoin and its utilization, I think are very important to advancing the state of dialogue around Bitcoin. Um, and then the second component is ensuring that when we write about Bitcoin, talk about Bitcoin, when we publish quote-unquote thought pieces on Bitcoin, that the information we're using is factually correct. And still to this day, right, the information that's being published just contains numerous factual inaccuracies. In fact, I think most of the work that's published on Bitcoin today is more fiction than it is fact. And it's extremely disappointing as someone who's rational and, you know, oriented towards objective truth, objective measurable truths, to see people rejecting objective measurable truths and instead favoring like sensationalist narrative and often cases a sensationalist narrative that promotes a very specific point of view, particularly around energy and its role in our society. And predominantly the view is that using energy is, is bad. When in fact, everything we do, right? Everything we do in our lives uses energy in, in some form. So it's a very unintelligent conversation and trying to keep the conversation um, intelligent and interestingly like I, within the Bitcoin community I feel like I've had this like big backlash where people believe that WEF is like coordinating some sort of mass social agenda and so now I'm an agent of WEF and an enemy of Bitcoin which is super interesting because like I would say the opposite is true I'm a perpetual thorn in West side who's constantly pounding the table when it comes to the conversation about Bitcoin and energy usage yeah so, that's great it's quite funny. what was it like what was it like to be before Congress and and be literally being testifying before a representative about shit coins that must have been surreal and, and you know it was I think for me the funniest thing really was just thinking about where my family comes from and, you know, who I am. Like, I'm just a random person who comes from nothing and from nowhere. Um, and to be in that position, I was very grateful for the opportunity to have the opportunity to talk about Bitcoin and our industry. And in that hearing in particular, if you recall, that hearing was about Libra. Um, in the morning session, it was David Marcus testifying in front of the House Financial Services Committee. And then in the afternoon, it was a panel of folks from the crypto space, um, including Gary Gensler, um, who at the time was lecturing at MIT, myself and a few other folks. And really, I only had one objective in that conversation. It was to talk about Bitcoin and its importance um, to American innovation and American financial competitiveness. It was not to talk about anything else. And I think we were effective in that uh, objective. 
And I think, again, if we look at, um, you know, the exchange with um, Congressman Davidson, uh, Warren Davidson, he's a Republican from Ohio, um, that, you know, that exchange, um, we had actually never spoken before that exchange, so it's quite funny. But um, I think that exchange and really what he was trying to do with that was to really highlight and and to extol some of the virtues of, of Bitcoin. And I do believe Bitcoin amongst the pantheon of cryptocurrencies is unique in ways that no other cryptocurrency will ever be in terms of, you know, being objectively um, sort of neutral, but also um, operating in any and all adversarial environments thanks to proof of work and Bitcoin's use of, of energy. Um, and so it was a it was an interesting experience. Um, I did not sleep the night before because I was working on something else at the same time. And then when I got to like the Senate halls, I was like, oh, I probably should have like thought about this some more. <laughs> I got on a Friday and the testimony was on a Tuesday. So I ended up spending my weekend writing my written testimony and like kind of preparing my remarks and comments. Um, I always like having facts. I like bringing receipts. I made sure I had a lot of facts and figures. That's like the debate background coming in there. Um, but honestly, when you get up on the stand, like so much of it, I've been doing this for so long now. I've been in this industry for almost eight years. So, so much of it is just instinctive, right? Like yeah. I've just done it so much. I've done this thousands of times. You it's mentioned, um, yeah, you mentioned yeah. Gary Gensler. I know you were at MIT before he was there, but have you run into him um, or did you run into him when he was at MIT for a little bit? No, I didn't. Um, you know, he taught at um, Sloan. He did a class on, on blockchain. I think, um, you know, uh, we have very different worldviews. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, um, yeah, I don't really have anything else to say other than that. But no, we did not run into each other. Um, in fact, in the congressional testimony, he made a statement uh, about margin trading in Bitcoin that was factually incorrect, and I corrected him uh, during the hearing on that because, uh, you know, it's important that we uh, share factual information as opposed to our feelings. Uh, feelings and facts are two very different things. I have a lot of feelings, but when you're in the role of testifying in front of, of Congress, it's my belief that you should share facts and not feelings. And so I felt compelled to ensure that it was uh, facts that we were discussing and yeah. not our feelings. Amazing. And that, I'll just stick to saying that, you know, again, I think when it comes to crypto, it's very difficult for people to separate their feelings from the facts. And that is an unfortunate reality of um, the challenges we face. So you've been through um, the the bull and the bear market of, of, you know, 2017, 2018, and then crypto winter. And then things came back, uh, kind of, you know, DeFi summer was happening um, 2020. And then we had NFT craze and all-time highs in, in Bitcoin and Ethereum um, last year. Now things seem to be um, definitely on a downturn again. Um, I've written before that I think, you know, hanging into this industry and, and being a reporter during like the bear market was actually um, one of the, the best things that could have happened to me because it forced me to just find the people who are still, you know, building projects and, and trying to make this world into what they wanted it to be. Um, do you have any thoughts on what, what might be coming here uh, in terms of the downturn and, and whether, you know, a shakeout is not a bad thing? Um, yeah, look, I think 
I've done the same thing no matter what's happening in the, the market. Like prices, there are a lot of people who are like, oh, price doesn't matter. And I'm like, you're out of your mind. Price absolutely matters. I would much rather Bitcoin be at 65000 than 35000 Like, let's not kid ourselves. But I think to a certain degree, look, like the long-term goal has not changed. Um, I think that crypto is a cultural movement first and foremost, and we see that today. It is not only financial in nature, um, but it's political, it's social, it's cultural, it's um, technological, it's, it's economic. It's all of these different revolutions sort of rolled up into one. And um, I think it doesn't really matter what market environment we're in. People will come and people will go. There are definitely a lot of fair weather, like crypto people. They will come, they'll go, they'll come back. Not really concerned about that. I've always had one goal and one goal only. It's like, how do we continue to drive the movement forward? How do we evangelize and how do we get people to engage with crypto in a meaningful way? It's super simple. The way that I know how to do that is to work with incredible founders and to help them build compelling products and to get those products into the right channels and to help them build partnerships and raise capital and reach new client bases. And it's also to build my company, our company, CoinShares, into the best um, financial services company imaginable, right? And so that takes time. We're publicly listed, which means that we are also subject to the ups and downs of markets. I think being publicly listed is an absolute trip. There is like no rhyme or reason as to why your stock price moves materially on a daily basis and with it, your net worth and someday it's your self-esteem. Um, it is, you know, to a certain degree, like this idea of animal spirits and markets certainly there. But what I keep just thinking about is <clears throat> where we were seven years ago, where we are now, it could not be more different in terms of... Um, the amount of capital in the ecosystem, the market cap of some of these assets, the amount of attention on this space. But the one thing that hasn't changed that's been consistent throughout is the level of passion and ideological commitment people have to what we're doing and why we're doing it. And I think that is, for me, also unchanged over the last seven or eight years. There are definitely days where it's harder than others. There are definitely months at a time where I feel uninspired. And it's actually during bull markets where I feel least engaged. Like Q4 of last year, I was completely disengaged from crypto. I found it appalling <laughs> because it was so much fucking trash, like literal trash. Yeah. And it happened in the bull market. Yeah. And now I'm excited again, right? Because a lot of the trash is sort of like... Fading away, yeah. a lot of the shortens and influencers are kind of leaving to go shill whatever their next thing is. Yeah, and the people who build are the true believers and the people who are going to keep doing what they're doing no matter what the market's doing. So that's exciting. I think on the cultural front, uh, that's what excites me almost the most. It's it's I've, I've been saying, you know, it's like you're in San Francisco in 1969. You might not know what's going on, but you know something is going on, and you should pay attention to it. Um, and uh, I think that, yeah, I, 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 am, uh, I have been finding it harder and harder to engage uh, on Twitter and, and whatnot lately just because of the, the so many influencers and, I don't know, people who are just, I don't know what they're trying to do, but it's just, just really kind of repellent to me. Um, but you are the last thing uh, than repellent. So, Melton, thank you so much for being on with me. I really appreciate it. I really love hearing your history and how you got to where you are. Uh, it's a fascinating story. Um, thank you so much. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me, and I'm really happy you're doing this series. Um, for people who are listening, I have open DMs on Twitter, so please feel free to reach out at any time. I do my best to, to respond. Um, you know, I, my favorite part of this industry is and has always been just meeting so many fascinating, interesting people who, for them, something in crypto just resonates at a very deep personal level, um, and so love hearing those stories. Please keep them coming. Yeah, and I, I will link to all that in the show notes and, and uh, some more information about coin shares and all that stuff. So um, don't don't worry about that. You love to see it. Thanks so much, Matt. Really appreciate the time today. You're welcome. Thank you, Malcolm.